Our study this, this morning is entitled, Crisis at the Close, Gethsemane. And we started this study together last week where we began to make the comparisons and the contrasts between the closing scenes of the life of Christ and the closing scenes that you and I are about to go through in the crisis at the close. And as we look at what it was that Jesus did in those last 48 hours of his life, we will there learn the life lessons that will sustain us when the hour of crisis comes in our life. So as we continue the narrative, last week we looked at the time when Jesus spent with the disciples in the upper room, um, and also before that time in the upper room, when Jesus warned the disciples repeatedly that this hour of crisis was going to come, that he was going to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners, that he was going to die. But as we found, in each one of those occasions when Jesus warned them about this crisis to come, he also gave them the promise that he would what? Rise again. On the third day that he would rise again. And we found that as we looked at that uh, particular um, admonition that Jesus gave to his disciples, that it largely went unheeded, that they didn't hear what Jesus was saying, and their lives were not changed. And when that hour of crisis came into their lives, they were wholly unprepared. Now, as we continue the narrative, this morning we're going into the next scene, if you will, and we're going to go with Jesus and the disciples as they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane and find out what lessons we can learn there. But before we jump into that, I want to kind of, again, give you this broad context of what we are looking at. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, we read this in our scripture reading. Uh, this is talking about the 144,000, those who are alive on earth right before Jesus comes back to take us home. The Bible tells us a key characteristic of them, that they follow the Lamb. What's the word there? Wherever He goes. They follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. Wherever the Lamb leads them, the 144,000 follow. They don't follow the Lamb only in the times of good, but they also follow Him in the times of distress and trial and difficulty. They follow the Lamb wherever the Lamb leads them to go, because where the Lamb is is safety, where the lamb is, is protection, where the lamb is, is going to be life eternal. And as they continue to follow the lamb wherever he goes, they will naturally follow the lamb into the kingdom of heaven one day is where we're all wanting to be. Amen? Now notice the statement here from the Review and Herald, April 12th of 1898. It makes this interesting statement. It says, we need not wait till we are translated to follow Christ. Somebody ought to say amen to that. We don't have to wait until we get to the kingdom of heaven to follow Christ. But it goes on and it says, God's people may do this where? Here below. We shall follow the Lamb of God in the courts above only if we what? Follow Him here, down here on this earth. So we're given the privilege to not just follow Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. I'm looking forward to that. Won't that be great? Amen? It'd be great to be able to follow Jesus, you know, wherever he leads us to go, and we have that to look forward to. But when we are here on this earth, before we go to the kingdom of heaven, we are also given that privilege to be able to follow Jesus and his example that he gives to us. Now, as we go into this time together this morning, 
I'm going to ask that you be prayerful about what the Lord would have you to take from our study together this morning. As we left Jesus and the disciples, they were there in the upper room in our last study together. And as we look at the Bible in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, you don't have to turn there, you can just jot it down. Um, As we look at that passage there, the Bible tells us that as Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room, there were just a couple of hours before the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, The Bible tells us that they were busy arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As this hour of crisis was closing in upon them, they were self they were, they were self-reflective. They were thinking about themselves and how they could achieve a higher position in the earthly kingdom that they thought Jesus was going to set up. And as they entered into that hour of crisis with a selfish heart, they were completely unprepared. And, and the, the comparison or the application could not be any clearer. Today we live in a, in a, in a uh, time in earth's history where selfishness abounds. Am I telling the truth this morning? Selfishness abounds. And in the world, uh, it's almost become natural to think about yourself before others. And as we find, the Bible is in complete contradiction to that concept. And unfortunately, it is, uh, it is filtered its way down into the church of God, where even people in God's church uh, think that they ought to think about themselves before they think about their fellow brothers and sisters. And this is not going to prepare us for the crisis at the close. If we are so concerned about ourselves, we will be found unprepared when that crisis comes. The good news this morning is this. According to Bible prophecy, which we just read in Revelation 14 and verse 4, that when Jesus comes, there will be a group who follows the Lamb wherever He goes. The Bible predicts it. That is going to happen. The question this morning is, am I going to be part of that group? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. It's not whether or not that group is going to exist. That group is going to exist. But the question is, am I going to be part of that group? And the good news this morning is that God has given you that invitation to follow his son wherever he leads you to go. And he is giving you the invitation to be part of this group that follows the lamb wherever he goes. I want to accept that invitation this morning. How about you? So turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and let's continue this story and uh, draw some parallels and applications out of it in our life today. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 46 is where we're going to be spending our time together. Notice what the Bible says. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. The Bible says this, Then cometh Jesus with them, that is the disciples, unto the place called Gethsemane. And he said unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go yonder and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, And watch with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples, and he findeth them asleep. And he said unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again and the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them, and he went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he unto his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is delivered, betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. This was about the hours of, between the hours of 9 o'clock and midnight on Thursday evening. The sun, or the moon, was full. It was probably a cool night as Jesus entered into the garden place that he had frequented many times. He enjoyed the garden. It was probably a picturesque place. And there he met his father many times. And as he had those encounters with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, in this dark hour, he yearned to be in that place where he had had those conversations with his father before. And as he enters into the garden, the Bible tells us that he tells his disciples to stay there at the entrance to the garden. And he takes Peter, James, and John together with him, and he goes a little further. And as he uh, goes into that garden, he asks those three disciples of his to watch and pray. Then he goes and he falls down and he prays to his heavenly Father, as we see here, asking that the cup may pass from him, that he may not drink it. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus appeals to his disciples in verse 41, and he tells them why they should be watching and praying. He says, watch and pray that you enter not into what? Into temptation. Do we live in a time in earth's history where temptations abound? Indeed we do. And, and this, this appeal that Jesus was giving to his disciples to watch and pray that they enter not into temptation, Jesus understood that just before them, there were temptations that were going to abound. They were going to be tempted to uh, deny that they knew Jesus. They were going to be tempted to deny that they were one of Jesus' followers. They were going to be tempted to become like part of the promiscuous crowd, crying, crucify him, crucify him. They were going to be tempted with many temptations. And so Jesus was appealing to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. Why? Because he said the spirit indeed is what? Willing, but the flesh is? What did the disciples just say in the upper room when Jesus said uh, that you will be offended because of me this night? They said, no, 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 not me, Lord. You see, Jesus knew that the Spirit was willing, that they were willing in their heart of hearts to not deny him. But he also knew that, humanly speaking, that their flesh was weak. And that they needed to spend this time, as, as late as it was in the evening, as tired as they were, they needed to spend this time in prayer that they would enter not into temptation. Do we need to do the same thing? Now, 
I think we all know this. And, and as we go through the story uh, together today, the temptation is going to be to kind of check out because we've read this story so many times. We've heard these applications so many times. We've read it for ourselves and Desire of Ages in the Bible. The temptation is for us to just kind of switch into neutral and not really get what the Lord is trying to say to us this morning. But I want you to take this story, the Garden of Gethsemane, and as we're told in the book Desire of Ages, take it scene by scene in your mind. Let your imagination grasp what is taking place here. Let your mind's eye see it happening in your mind, and then apply the principles that Jesus used to be successful in his hour of crisis into your own life so that you can be successful as well. Now listen to this. This is from Signs of the Times, December 2 of 1897. It says this, At the end of an hour, Jesus, feeling the need of human sympathy, rose from the ground and staggered to the place where he had left the three disciples. Listen to this. He longed to what? He longed to see them. His human nature yearned for human sympathy. He longed to hear from them words that would bring some relief in his suffering. But he was disappointed. But he was disappointed. They did not bring to him the help he craved. Instead, what does she say? He findeth them sleeping. Isn't that fascinating? When I read that statement, it just, when I, you know, I'm trying to get this in my imagination here and try to understand it. It just blew my mind to think that Jesus in this dark hour, he was looking to his disciples for support and encouragement. He went to them not because he wanted to see, he wanted to check up on them to make sure that they were praying like he told them to, but he went to them because he wanted to hear a word of encouragement from his disciples. He was beginning to feel that weight of the sin of the world pressing down upon him, and he needed some relief from, uh, from his human companions, some comfort from them. And as he came to Peter, James, and John, what did, where did he find them? He didn't find them in an attitude of prayer. He, didn't, he wasn't even able to hear a word of encouragement from them. He findeth them asleep. You know, there are people in our church, in our community, and in our family that are looking to us for words of encouragement. And if we are spiritually asleep, they may miss out on that encouragement that God has given brought you into their life to give to them. And you know, the good news is that Jesus' success was not dependent on the encouragement that he received from the disciples. Somebody ought to say amen to that. But that's not always the case with other people in our lives. Other people in our lives may need those words of encouragement, and if they don't receive those words of encouragement... It may be a spiritual detriment in their lives. We need to be awake to the needs of others around us, not sleeping as the disciples were found sleeping in our story today. Self-confidence on one hand and sleepiness on the other failed to be a support to the Savior And it also failed to prepare them when that hour of crisis came. Listen to this statement, Testimonies, Volume 2, page 205. says this, 
by these sleeping disciples is represented a by these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church when the day of God's visitation is nigh. It is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is what? Most perilous. What we find here is a contrast or parallel rather between the story of Jesus and his disciples in the garden and our times today. And she says that the sleeping disciples are representative of a church that is sleepwalking. We come to church we're walking around, we're, 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 we're professing godliness, we are, uh, uh, you know, trying to get the word out, but we are, in a sense, spiritually sleepwalking because we are not spending that time together with God as we ought. In fact, we're told, and I'll read this statement to you in just a little bit, that prayer is the breadth of the soul. You've heard that statement before, right? Prayer is the breath of the soul. And when people don't get enough oxygen, things happen in their lives that are not good. And eventually, they actually become sleepy. And if something doesn't change, they will die. And we have a church today that is spiritually inebriated, that is spiritually tired that is spiritually walk, sleepwalking because we are not spending the time with Christ in our prayer closets the way we should. So here's the question. If the sleeping disciples represent a sleeping church, what does Jesus represent? Jesus represents a praying church. A church that is busy about its business of talking to their Heavenly Father about their trials and difficulties, not complaining amongst themselves because we can't help each other. The only thing that we can do is pray, and God's the one that can really solve the problem for us. In fact, I heard a preacher once say that complaining Christians, that if you observe their prayer life, you will find that their prayer life is wanting because they are busy complaining to others and not talking to God instead. And I think that's true. When we're not in the custom of talking to our Heavenly Father about the trials and the difficulties in our lives, we got to talk to somebody about it, and so we begin to complain amongst ourselves, begin to talk to other people instead of talking to the one that can actually solve the problem for us. Amen? Let's not be a sleepwalking church. Let's follow the example of Jesus, not the disciples. And in this hour of crisis, set that time that is needed aside to spend together with our Heavenly Father that He may prepare our hearts that we might be successful as Jesus was in His hour of crisis. Listen to this statement. I just read this this last week in my devotional time. Great Controversy, page 507. It says this, Why are the soldiers of Christ so sleepy and indifferent? She says this, because they have so little real connection with who? With Christ. Because they are so destitute of his what? 
of his spirit. Two things she says there for the reason why the church is sleepy and indifferent. Because there is little connection with Christ, uh, who is the source of life in John chapter 15. And because they are destitute of the spirit of God. For some reason, and I think you'll agree with me on this. For some reason, there is a tendency with human beings to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. Am I preaching the truth? Right? There's a tendency um, uh, with human beings to compare ourselves among ourselves. And as Christians, when we do that, we become satisfied with our spiritual experience just as long as in our own estimation we're a little bit higher than other people around us. Right? As long as we're doing it in our minds and in our estimations just a little bit better than brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, we become comfortable in our spiritual lives. But what we need to be doing is not comparing ourselves with the disciples. We need to be comparing ourselves with Jesus. And when we compare ourselves with Jesus, we will find that we have a constant need of spiritual growth in this hour of crisis. Amen? So this morning what I want to do is I want to take you through three characteristics of the prayer of Jesus here in the garden. Many of this will, much of this will be familiar to you. But as always, it's good to repeat and review these things. So the first thing, the first characteristic that I would like to take a look at this morning, characteristic number one, and that's the most obvious, we won't spend too much time on it, and that is the prayer of, in the prayer of Jesus, he prayed for his father's what? Father's will. Verse 39, he says this, and went a little, he went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will be done. Has it ever struck you before that Jesus prayed for something that wasn't the father's will? Isn't that interesting? He prayed that the cup would pass away from him. That was his desire. His desire was to not drink that cup. But what was the Father's desire for him to do? To drink that cup. His, his prayer request was actually something that the Father's, it wasn't the Father's will for him to do. He was asking for something that his Father wanted him to do. He's asking to not do something that his Father wanted him to do. It's always been interesting to me that Jesus was praying what was in his heart. He was just, he was pouring out his heart to his heavenly father and telling him exactly how he felt, even though it was in opposition a little bit to what the father's will was in his life. And this is a, this is a very important lesson that we must learn. If we don't learn this lesson in our prayer life, it becomes plastic and artificial. If we're just praying these fancy prayers that have fancy flowery sentences and statements where we're always praying things that we think God wants to hear rather than what's in our heart of hearts, it is a plastic and artificial prayer life that we have. But as we follow the example of Jesus in this dark hour of crisis, as, beginning, as he's beginning to feel the weight of the sin of the world pressed down upon him, he spoke to his heavenly Father what was in his heart. Told him exactly what it was that he desired. But then as we look at the second prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden, as obviously he prayed three times, in verse 42 he says, and he went away the second time and he prayed saying, oh my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, 
except I drink it, what does he say? Thy will be done. So we begin to see that Jesus' uh, uh, desires and inclinations are starting to come in line with what the will of his father was. At first he said, Father, let this cup pass away from me. And now he's saying, Father, if it is your will for me to drink it, thy will be done. And then, of course, the third time he prays in verse 44, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time. What does it say? Saying the same words. He prayed the same thing the third time. Unless we begin our prayers in the way that Jesus has begun them, we have not yet learned what it means to pray. As you've heard the statement before, prayer is the opening of your heart, uh, the heart to God as to a friend, right? You've heard that statement before. How deep is your friendship going to go if you're having that plastically, plastic and artificial conversation with them where it's always on the superficial? How deep does that relationship go? It doesn't go very deep. But you know, there's time, the times when I, when I talk to my friends and I tell them what's on my heart of hearts and later on I realize that what I said was probably not, it was not accurate or wasn't right, but it was on my heart and I was able to tell them that and they were able to give me some of their advice back. It's at those times that our relationships really begin to grow. And that's what God wants. God wants a deep relationship with us where we can open up our hearts to him and tell him exactly how we feel but always with the mindset, not my will, but thine be done. That what we find there is the attitude of surrender. The attitude of what? Surrender. Surrender not to his will, but to the will of God. But that didn't keep Jesus from telling the Father what his desire was. And that's the point I want to make there, that Jesus was comfortable enough in his walk with the Lord, that he, or his Father, that he was able to tell him exactly how he felt, and so also should we. The next characteristic that I would like to take a look at as we continue to look at the prayer of Jesus in the garden is that Jesus' prayer was an individual prayer. It was a what? It was an individual prayer. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean, what I mean is this. When Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane, his prayer life was his own. His relationship with his heavenly father was his own, and it was independent of other people. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It was independent of other people. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this, that the success and the spiritual strength that Jesus had was not dependent upon other people. He was independent in his walk with the Lord. He was able to independently, with the strength of his heavenly Father, stand in that relationship with him. He needed no humanly, earthly support. As we see, Jesus came to the disciples, we read it already, looking for encouragement, but he didn't find it. That did not cause him to let go of his walk with the Lord, but he continued to hold on to his walk with the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me that sometimes, you know, we as human beings become a little too dependent upon other people. You know, we don't find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane waiting for Peter to make the recommendation for him to start praying. Right? Peter, James, and John didn't say, you know, Jesus, this would be a good time for you to start praying. How's your prayer life, Jesus? How's your prayer life going? You know, this, you, you're saying that there's going to be this, this death that's about to come. This would be a good time for you to talk to your Heavenly Father. Do you see Peter, James, and John telling Jesus that? Mm-mm. 
He had his own individual spiritual walk with the Lord. He didn't need the encouragement. As much as he desired it and looked for it, he didn't need that human encouragement and support. He was able to stand on his own two feet because he had developed a deep communion with his heavenly Father. Listen to this statement. This is from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 122. And it says this. There are persons in the church who are not converted. Do you agree with that statement? Well, we always think it's somebody else, right? Oh, it's not me. I'm converted. That's somebody else that's in the church that's unconverted. Well, again, let's let's be open to how the Spirit is speaking to our hearts this morning. There are persons in the church who are not converted and who will not unite in earnest, persevering, or prevailing prayer. We must enter upon the work, what's the next word there? We must enter upon the work individually. We must pray more and... Oh, I don't know if I can do that. You know, it's interesting, the title for this chapter is called A Call for Revival. What is it called? A call for revival. And what does she say it needs to happen for a call for revival? Well, people need to be converted, number one. But then she also says that we must have an individual experience with God. We must pray more and talk less. Call for revival. As we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had an individual prayer life with his heavenly Father. He walked with God on his own. It was not dependent upon the support of some earthly companion. And sometimes we become dependent upon other people to sustain us spiritually. Other people praying for us. Now I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for one another. You know I'm not saying that. Of course we should pray for each other. But we should not become dependent where our spiritual lives do not uh, grow without those prayers. We need to be able to stand on our own two feet together with God us and him, and be able to walk this spiritual walk. Because in the last days when we meet that crisis at the close, the Bible tells us that the natural affections of a mother towards her children and a father towards his children and and siblings towards one another and friends and those in the church, that those relationships are going to crumble. And it's going to be like we're standing on our own. We're going to be in the same situation that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane where he went back to look for some encouragement from Peter, James, and John, and he didn't find it. And if we're dependent upon other people to support us spiritually, when that crisis at the close comes, we are going to crumble like Peter, James, and John did. But we want to be able to stand like Jesus did. Amen? We want to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, even into this experience of walking with God hand in hand. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke. Let's look at our third characteristic here. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. This is Luke's account of the same thing. Luke 22 and verse 44, he says this, of course, our third characteristic is that Jesus was earnest in his prayer. He says this, and being in agony, 
He prayed, what's the next two words there? More earnestly. This is the third time he prayed, okay? So, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So as Jesus comes back into that prayer, you know, he, he prayed the same thing over and over again. He, that didn't bother him that he was praying the same prayer. That was what was on his heart. He needed to talk to his father about it. But as he comes back that third time, he is just so compelled in this prayer to do the Father's will. And he, his body is in such anguish that the Bible says he prays so earnestly that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. Now, you know that that's an actual medical condition. This can actually, there, there are documented medical conditions where people have sweat blood before. And what happens when that takes place is that the little tiny capillaries in the sweat glands, they burst, causing blood to mix with the sweat. And it happens when humans are put under great emotional and mental stress with fear and intense mental contemplation. That's when this oftentimes happens. It's a mental thing. When the mind is so weighed down with something that the capillaries in the, in the sweat glands just rupture and, and blood comes out with the sweat. Now, they don't lose much blood, according to the medical journals, when this happens. But when it takes place, it leaves the skin very tender. Now, that has very interesting applications to it later on when we find Jesus with his bare back and somebody standing there with a whip getting ready to beat him. This was such an intense prayer life that Jesus had, so earnest, and I don't really even think earnest caps, captures this prayer that Jesus was praying in the garden. He was so in earnest that his body physically reacted to it. And the little blood vessels ruptured in his forehead, on his face, on his neck, on his body. And the sweat that was coming, as, even though he was in the cool of the night, in the middle of the evening, in the, in the dark part of the night, with the dew around him, even though it was cool outside, he was sweating these great drops of blood because his body was in such anguish as he poured out his heart to his heavenly Father. Now... <laughs> I don't want to be presumptuous here, but I think we have a little room to grow in our prayer life. I've never, I've never even broke a sweat in my prayer life. And I'm ashamed to say that. But, you know, in our prayer life, we don't have this sense of earnestness. We kind of, prayer is kind of one of those things that we just, you know, start our day off with and we continue on. And we, 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 we may even forget that we had a prayer in the morning sometimes. But for Jesus, the prayer was what made his life possible, his prayer life. Now listen to this statement talking about God's people. In uh, early writings, page 269, it says this, I saw some with strong faith and agonizing cries, pleading with God. Their consciences were pale, or sorry, their countenances were pale, and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their what? Now, she's talking about the people of God, okay? Th these are the ones that follow the Lamb wherever He goes, right? So, she's looking at their prayer life here. They're pleading with God. 
They're marked with deep anxiety, They're expressive of their in, which is expressive of their internal struggle. And then she says this, firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenance. Listen, large drops of perspiration fell from their what? Foreheads. Do they have a similar experience to Jesus? Now, she didn't say they sweat great drops of blood. That's taking it to a whole new level. But there will come a point when the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, that this will be the prayer life that they have. They will have such a deep prayer life with God that there will be, there will, their faces will be marked with, with the anxiety, the anguish in their soul. Their faces will be sweating great drops as it, of perspiration as they pour out their heart to God. As I read this, I say, Lord, I've got room to grow. I've got room to grow. When I look at the story of Jesus in the garden, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I find that I'm more like the disciples than I'm like Jesus. Sleepy, having a hard time keeping my eyes open in my prayer time, having a hard time keeping the focus, find my mind wandering oftentimes when I'm praying. It's not something that I delight in as much as Jesus delighted in it. But you know, prayer is like a muscle. And the more you work that muscle, the stronger it becomes. And the less you use that muscle, the weaker it becomes. And for some of us, we don't use the tool of prayer enough. That's why our prayer life is so weak. But for Jesus, it was something that he did in the morning, he did in the evening, sometimes he did it all, day, all night long, and oftentimes, many times throughout the day, he was communing with his father. And for those three and a half years of his earthly ministry, his life was largely sustained, his ministry was largely sustained because of his connection through prayer with his heavenly father. And so when he came to that hour of crisis, he was strong in the tool of prayer. And if we're going to meet success in the crisis at the close, we too must develop the strength associated with the gift of prayer. If we were to use the language of schools, we might say that Jesus had his PhD in prayer, right? He had graduated from kindergarten. He had graduated from grade school. He graduated from the high school of prayer. And he even went past college in his prayer life. He had grown exponentially in his prayer life with his Heavenly Father until he had this experience that was able to sustain him in that dark hour. And so I ask you this morning, where are you in your prayer education? Are you a kindergartner? Are you in grade school? First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth? Are you, have you graduated into high school? 9, 10, 11, 12. Have you moved on and got your, college, your high school diploma and now you're working on your college degree? Where are you in your prayer experience? Where are you in your prayer education? Those who meet the crisis at the close and are successful will not only follow the Lamb wherever He goes, but they will emulate the example that he has given to us in their prayer life. It's something that we have to grow into. I know I'm not there yet. I'm ashamed to tell you this. But by God's grace, I will be there when that time comes. Gospel Workers, page 254. I'm going to 
read this to you in closing here. It says this. Prayer is the breath of the soul. Prayer is what? Now, if you, if you want something to think about this evening, just, or this afternoon, just write down that little statement. Prayer is the breath of the soul. And this afternoon, just think about that. What are the applications of that? What, it, what, what is breath to me as a human being? How long can I go without breathing? Right? You know, so prayer is the breath of the spiritual soul. She goes on. She says this. It is the secret of spiritual power. It is the what? Secret of spiritual power. No other means of grace can be substituted and the health of the soul preserved. Prayer brings the heart into immediate connection with the wellspring of life. Somebody ought to say amen to that. And strengthens the sinew and the muscle of the religious experience. Neglect the exercise of prayer or engage in prayer spasmodically every now and then as seems convenient. And you will lose your hold on God. The spiritual faculties lose their vitality. The religious experience lacks health and vigor. Prayer is the breath of the soul. How often are you breathing? Are you breathing twice a day? Once a day? A couple times a week? Now, there's some people that can go for several minutes, you know, holding their breath. But spiritually, I'm going to suggest to you that it's hard for us to do that and survive spiritually. Prayer is the breath of the soul. It is the secret of spiritual success if your spiritual life is waning it is oftentimes because you're not spending time in prayer with God every time I look back on my spiritual journey and I see those dark valleys and those trying moments not the trials of life but the dark times in my relationship with God I oftentimes find that it was because I was not spending the time in prayer as I should And I try to find all kinds of other things to blame it on. You know, this circumstance and that person and this situation and and this this stage in my life. And I try to find all kinds of things to blame it on that. That's why my spiritual life is suffering. No, 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 no. If I'm going to be honest with myself, if I look into my spiritual life, I will find it's because my prayer closet was neglected. It's always good for the pastor to be honest. I've just recently come out of one of those experiences in my spiritual walk. And by God's grace, I've learned my lesson. Every day, prayer is the breath of the soul. And it is the secret of spiritual power. If you're lacking spiritual power, it's because you're lacking in your prayer time. As we close this morning, I want you to think of something with me. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus. You don't need to turn there. This is another sermon that we can do sometime. But in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray, right? And that's where the Lord's prayer is. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So they come and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. What better person could you learn how to pray from? So I want to encourage you this morning that if you want to be deep with your Heavenly Father, if you want to have the prayer life that Jesus had, go to Jesus and let him teach you how to pray. Look at his life. Look at the example that he has given to us and follow that example. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I want to tell you something this morning, that the more time you devote to your prayer life, the more you enjoy it. 
And you grow to this point where you, where, you, where you just want to talk to God about it. That you're not satisfied with talking to other people. That you, you, you need to talk to the one that can actually solve the problem for you. So in closing, let me give you four things just really quickly here. I'm not going to take much time on this. I've got a whole sermon on this one we can talk about another time. But I want to give you four things to apply in your prayer life that will help you uh, as you continue to develop this spiritual muscle. The first thing that you need to do, and maybe you've heard this before, uh, and maybe you're already doing it. If you are, praise the Lord. But the first thing you need to do is have a place to pray. Have a what? Have a place to pray. Designate a place in your house. This is where I'm going to meet the Lord every morning and every evening. This is my prayer place. When, when I, when, before we moved up here, our house was so small, and my place to meet God every morning and, 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 uh, and, and sometimes in the evening, but mostly in the morning, was the laundry room <laughs> because uh, it was at the other end of the house, and the kids were at the other end of the house, and I wouldn't disturb them. But that was where I would meet the Lord, and wherever it is that you can find a quiet place, have a place to pray. This is a designated spot that I'm going to meet God every morning. The second thing you need to do is have a time to pray. Have a what? Have a time to pray. So I have a place to pray and have a time to pray. I'm going to meet the Lord right here at this time every morning. Okay, so, so set aside a specific time that you're going to meet with the Lord each morning. So you have a place to pray. You have a time to pray. The next thing you want to do is you want to learn how to pray out loud. And that's why you want to find a secret place where only the ear of God can hear. And maybe you might have to whisper that prayer so that other ears don't hear it around you. But you need to get into the habit of verbalizing your prayers uh, with your words. And here's the reason why. You know, when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray, why do you think they asked Jesus that question? Do you think it was because Jesus was sitting there? Do you think that's how Jesus was praying? No, when they heard Jesus praying, when they heard the earnestness in his voice, and this is what we're told in Desire of Ages, when they heard Jesus praying, they were compelled by what they heard. When Jesus went out into the, into the garden as he uh, prayed throughout the night, he was verbally speaking those words to his heavenly Father. And what you'll find is this, when you verbalize your prayer, your mind will wander a whole lot less because you have to think about what you're saying. And you also find that you won't repeat yourself as much. Maybe you have that problem as well where you're just repeating the same thing over and over again. Have a place to pray. Have a time to pray. Learn to pray out loud. And the last thing that you can apply in your prayer life is this, and this is where we, what we find from the Spirit of Prophecy. She says, if your mind wanders, how many of you have your mind wander during prayer time? Oh, I hate it when that happens. I feel so guilty when it takes place, but the Lord is willing to forgive me. Uh, but when your mind wanders, this is what she says. Bring it back. That's pretty simple, isn't it? If your mind wanders, if you start thinking about the day and start, start thinking about the projects, it, it, that happened to me this morning. I'm praying and I'm getting ready for the, the, the sermon today. I'm praying and getting ready for church. And I find my mind wandering and thinking about some projects that I need to get done in my house. And I'm thinking, Lord, I want to talk to you and I want to think about that stuff. I've got all day long to think about it. I want to talk to you right now. And so she says, if your mind wanders, what does she say? Bring it back. Very simple. And just start talking to the Lord again. The Lord understands and he will forgive you for that wandering mind. So have a place to pray. Have a time to pray. Pray out loud where only God can hear you, even if it's a whispered prayer. And if your mind wanders, bring it back again. I want to encourage you this next week to get your desire of ages out. Maybe it's been a little while since you've read it. I don't know. Maybe you're going through it right now. But I want to encourage you to get your desire of ages out 
and read the chapter on Gethsemane. It's a long one, so you maybe want to take a couple of paragraphs a day or something like that. Just kind of go through it throughout the week. And as you look at this chapter and as you read through it, ask the Lord, Lord, help me to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I want this experience in my life. I want to have the prayer life of Jesus. How about you? Lord, help me to have this prayer life that Jesus had that sustained him in the darkest hour of his life. I want to be thick with my heavenly Father. Let's pray about that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Loving Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are so patient with us when we make mistakes, when we err from talking to you as we should, when we depend upon our own strengths and ideas instead of depending upon you and consulting your wisdom. Father, forgive us for neglecting our prayer time. Father, I pray that as we work this spiritual muscle out again, that we would gain greater and greater strength, that we would grow to become more and more dependent upon our prayer lives, that we would grow to, to, to go to you first instead of others, to unload our heart's burdens to you first instead of talking to other people. That, Father, we would grow in our spiritual life that we could become dependent upon you as the only sustaining power in our lives. Father, we don't want to be dependent upon others. It's nice to have words of encouragement. It's nice to know that other people are praying for us. But, Father, we ultimately want to be able to stand on our own with you as Jesus did. Help us to this end, Lord, I pray, that when that crisis comes, we won't be like the disciples but that we would be found like Jesus. Not my will, but thine be done. Willing to go whatever trial, go through whatever trial and crisis you may bring in our lives, knowing that as we follow the Lamb, that he is leading us. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and thank you for this invitation and reminder again. Bless us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.